0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate The outdoor expert and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of harvesting nature. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Harvesting Nature Wild Fish and Game podcast. Uh, We're in episode number 10, which is pretty exciting for us, which means we've been going now for about five months. Uh, putting out episodes every other week more or less so today we're really happy to have a special guest on here uh, without further ado I'll let her introduce herself.
2: Hey guys, it's Danielle Pruitt. Um, I I operate under Wild and Whole on social media and I am also the uh, wild foods editor for meat eater.
1: Awesome, well thanks for being on uh, Danielle. It's It's awesome to have you here like I said. Uh, Me and the crew, we're excited to chat a little bit about some uh, wild games, some cooking, and and some fishing, so uh, we'll let the other guys introduce themselves as well.
3: Hey, this is uh, Dustin, welcome back. And this is Corey, coming from Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, so as many people know, we're we're having to face some technical challenges here today due to the current state of the world, but uh, nonetheless, we're going to pass those challenges and uh, bring you a nice quality podcast, so... Uh, Without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started. Talking a little bit about just being in the times that we're in, uh, I guess Danielle wanted to touch a little bit about uh, cooking from pantry, kind of limiting what, playing on what you have in in a limited variety.
2: Yeah, you know, I, yeah, you know, it's funny, like, um, before I started cooking, or like when I was just getting into cooking, like, I loved buying cookbooks. But there's, like, that chapter the very beginning of every cookbook. It's, like, you should have these tools, and you should have these ingredients in your pantry. And it's, like, skip, skip, never, ever, ever paid attention to that. And it's, like, now that I know how to cook, I'm, like, that's actually the most important part of that cookbook is are those, like, pantry staples. Because when you don't have those kind of, like, everyday common ingredients, it makes difficult. Makes it very difficult to um, cook without a recipe, or when you're in a situation like we're in, and you can't just run to the store when you see a recipe you like, and you're like, "I need that ingredient. Let me go to the store and get it." You know, having a well-stocked pantry is so
1: important. I couldn't agree more. I uh, I ran into the same issue yesterday. So I was uh, preparing a recipe that it will go out tomorrow. Uh, well, I guess it'll go out in the past, or it have already been out by the time this is out. Um, and, like, halfway through, I realized I was missing a couple of the key ingredients, so I just kind of had to wing it. And uh, it definitely made me reflect upon on our conversation as sort of having uh, pantry stocked because you, you never know what you're going to need, and, and having those few essential items can definitely save you a lot of trouble down the way.
4: I found it as a good learning point with my kids because I got two children home doing the, the homeschooling, and we tried making some venison wonton soup and some duck stock that I have made and we didn't have wonton wrappers. We didn't have cabbage. We usually use cabbage when we're making any kind of, a, you know, a wonton or a sticker or anything of the sorts. We, we like a little cabbage for the crunchiness. We were substituting with the other things we had. We were using celery instead. For the wonton wrapper, we went back to the, the basics, got some flour, water, eggs, salt, and made our own. Uh, but it was a good lesson for the children because they got to see how you can re- rely on these basic things and make things from scratch. I
3: find myself That's Googling
2: really a good. lot
3: of substitutions for certain things.
2: The wonton soup sounds really good. <laughs> and I like the delicious. substitution yeah. with celery. Like, people overlook celery all the time. I used to only buy celery for, like, making stalks or the base of a sauce or some sort of, like, pot roast. And then I was, like, realizing how wasteful I was if I didn't get through all of it. And I started just taking the whole... Whatever I had left, adding uh, some oil, salt, pepper, and roasting it in the oven for, like, 30 minutes. And you'd be surprised how good roasted celery is. And then, like, some of the little um, leaves in there get fried and they're crunchy. It's like something so simple. Um, Roasted celery. I really got to try that. Yeah, you would never think about using that until you get your, yourself in a situation where you're like, I need something for dinner. How about that celery that's been sitting in there forever? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I uh, Have you had the uh, Chinese celery before?
2: No, I, always, I we have a little Asian grocery store nearby. Um, I live in Houston, Texas, for anybody who does, doesn't know where I live, um, which is a awesome cultural melting pot and we have um a korean grocery store next door and another um, asian grocery store and i see it all the time but i've never worked with it
1: you should uh i grew it so we operated um for two years down here we just sold it at the the end of the year but we had a, a hydroponic farm down here in key west and one of the biggest staples that we grew was chinese celery because it's uh heat tolerant which does really well for us in the summer but the the flavor profile of it 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 hit like bitter sweet sour like just it, it hit every note and was just an all around really awesome thing and it's super easy to grow i think you can get the seeds online to uh to grow it yourself like uh was it baker creek seed company is one that we use but it's easy to grow and i liked incorporating it in a lot of things even juicing it uh outside i know everybody got on that big celery juice craze for a while but um Still, just <laughs> <laughs> adding into some some different meals and stuff. And
2: so, when do you plant? What zone are you in?
1: Key uh, West. Let's see. We are. I think it depends on where you're at in the Keys. Uh, the upper part of the Keys is eleven A, and the lower part of the Keys is eleven B.
2: Oh wow! Yeah, okay. we're, we're the. I'm only, in
1: nine. Yeah, we're the only um, zone like that in the the u.s so it's you come across some interesting problems because people will try to give you growing advice on certain stuff and and it's uh it's not as helpful as you would want it to be and then on top of that our growing season as we found out kind of runs in six month spurts uh so we would rotate our plants so from may so may june july august september uh october We would run all our heat-tolerant varieties of plants and and vegetables. And then come October, we would start switching over to the the cooler weather uh, plants. And that was pretty much it. Whereas if you're thinking, you know, you go to Home Depot or you go to one of the the plant stores, they're going to be selling stuff, you know, in the early spring and middle of the summer that that we're really planting in the late fall and into the winter because of the, the temperatures
2: yeah yeah that's we're similar to that not that far ahead like as you are um i guess nine eight man yeah that's like it's hot <laughs> yeah that's crazy
1: and we fa- we face unique stuff too like the salt air you know because we're on an island and we're two two miles by four miles roughly so we get a lot of sea breeze with some salt, so you get plants that are just completely salt intolerant and they just the leaves just burn up.
2: Oh, I see, I see. That's really interesting. This year, I planted my first like really big garden, um, and I'm really, really into it all.
1: <laughs> That's good, it's a good thing, uh, it's a good thing to be into, I, I feel like, but it also relates to to, like, having stuff and sort of being self-sufficient in, in times like these. Um, so what what do you have in your garden growing?
2: Well, I have one, one of the two favorite things that I planted a bunch of were okra because, I like, I could eat okra till the cows come home, and radishes. Like, I guess, I don't know why. Those are things that I could just eat every single day. Um, and then I bought some... Like, the radishes I bought, I didn't buy the breakfast radishes. I bought um, watermelon. Mm -hmm. I tried to, every every variety, I tried to make sure that it wasn't something I could get at a grocery store. It was, like, some sort of heirloom variety or something a little different. But, um, yeah, I've got everything from corn to lots of peppers, lots of tomatoes, squash, zucchini, cucumber, beans. The whole works.
1: That's awesome. That. sounds like a really good garden yeah i'm
2: excited
4: uh, do you do any like companion planting by any chance
2: you know i i i wish i had and like i, I kind of went back and replanted some things some of my um seeds didn't germinate and i like went back and tried to do like the three sisters thing um and then i've been reading a little bit more about types of herbs and marigolds or t- flowers to companion plant but but it all kind of happened like right as this COVID thing was going on. And I'm like, well, I can't just like go to the store and like grab more herbs and plants to like do like do the companion planning. And in my garden that I planted is out at my ranch, which is 45 minutes away. Um, I have family that live, live there. So like they kind of keep an eye on everything while I'm not there, but, um, so I'm trying to be as like low maintenance with it as possible since I'm not there all the time. But I wish I'd done a better job at researching companion planting for sure.
1: There's a, a good book that goes over companion planting and it literally it lists out all the different ones. I can't think of it off the top of my head. It's like tomatoes don't like something. It's it's another vegetable, but uh, I just came across it. I was cleaning out my closet and came across it the other day. Uh, where I had it, but it's a it's an interesting read that just some things don't mix.
4: Yeah, the like green beans and onions. Really? Yeah, but That's green good. beans are good with uh with corn, and that was that was my only success that I really had because I didn't know a lot about it at the time, but it I works did, out.
1: I did the uh, the three sisters method in uh, when I lived in San Diego, and did the squash and uh, the pole beans and the corn, and I was actually really surprised at how well uh, it worked. I was not he didn't come into it skeptic but i was you know a little cautious like this is kind of a, a a big space in my garden to try to run this and then yeah it turned out and it worked really well
2: is it just pole beans or do they work with bush beans
1: so the, the is, it,
2: is it the concept that they uh grow up the stalks
1: yep yeah up that. so if you plant them all at the same time the The idea is that everything will sprout and progress at a, a rate that it kind of just coexists. So your squash plants start to grow the bigger leaves, which will keep things from growing around the base of the other plants. Um, plus, the squash flowers bring in the pollinators, uh, which will help pollinate mm-hmm. uh, the beans. And then the vining of the pole beans they'll climb up as the corn starts going. They'll basically not go at the same height the corn will go up first and then the the pole beans will start uh, trellising up it and then once the the corn reaches full height you'll start to see blooming in your your uh your pole beans and then by then your squash are also blooming and then so all the pollinators are starting to come around ah that's really cool it's it's a neat concept And, and even like below the soil too there's a lot of uh I think your corn corn absorbs a lot of nitrogen, and I think squash or beans put out some nitrogen. There's like a balance there that that works, you know, like I said, surprisingly well, but it's a tried-and-true method that's been around for a long time. Yeah, it's cool.
4: You know what my favorite thing to grow is? It's potatoes. You ever build a potato box?
1: Yeah, yeah, I had one of those once.
4: It's like the lottery when, when it's time to harvest, and you peel those boards back, and you start going through them, and you just keep finding them. That's like one of the best things ever.
1: Can you explain a little bit what uh what the potato box is for anybody that doesn't know?
4: Okay, so what a potato box is is you basically plant like or you put it in the ground. Uh, let's say like four two by fours or or two by twos, and you have these. Uh, you make a, a square basically, and you use you can use pallet wood, recycled pallet wood, or you can get your own wood. And you're gonna make uh, at the very bottom. You'll probably put two boards high all the way around, so it has a stable base. You can even drive the stakes into the ground. Um, and you, you plant your potatoes and as they start to grow, when they, uh, well, when they start to, uh, leaf out and blossom, you add more dirt and then it, it grows higher. But what, what it did is by adding that dirt, it kick starts the roots to kind of grow off and, and grow potatoes. But then it keeps trying to get to the surface. So as it grows up, you keep adding more dirt and eventually you have this and you keep adding boards around the outside to contain the dirt. Um, Basically, you can screw them all in except for the front one you want to nail shut, and then when it's gotten all the way to the top, and it's growing out of it, and it, it blossoms and you're ready to harvest, you pull all those boards off the front, and you have this tower of dirt that's just filled with layers of potatoes that just comes out.
2: Oh, that sounds fun.
4: <laughs> it is. <laughs>
1: It's a it's definitely a neat concept and I've even seen it said you you don't have to wait till the plant goes all the way up. You can I think there's like a midway point where you can start harvesting off the bottom and then kind of as it works its way up, you you keep a continuous stock of potatoes going.
2: Do you do any foraging over there?
1: Oh, here? Um I mean, it not not as much as I'd like to. We have we've got some tropical fruit trees here uh, that people have around town and they'll let you come pick from it. Um, figs are kind of common coconuts. I guess we forage those pretty regularly in our. we've got in our neighborhood, there's probably, I don't know, 50 or so coconut trees all scattered around and the, the kids will bring those back and <laughs> we'll hack them open and, and use the coconut, uh, water. Um, there's a big, uh, it's like not a dwarf fig, but it produces like smaller figs. um, Actually, Dustin's over by your house. Is it? Yeah, that big old tree right across uh, right across from where the fire station is right there. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's like a it's yeah. – they're, they're mini figs because uh, I, I have one in my front yard too that I planted. Um, outside of that uh, mango season uh, during the, I think, May, June, July, you get some late mangoes in August. There's people around town that will kind of give them – if you come over and pick them, they'll let you come pick. That's about as – as foraging as we get
4: (laughs) well up on on boca chica in that area i found tons of just wild papayas
1: yeah that's pretty common too
2: oh wow that's crazy that's just crazy
1: (laughs) yeah the papayas are they're one of the one of the few fruit plants that if you plant it Say um we'll say like January time frame, if you plant the seed and it germinates and starts off, you know, as a small seedling, by the fall the plant will have grown and start producing fruit. It's like so quick.
3: Wow.
4: Well I was just saying I carry a pulse on my truck so that whenever I see a good ripe coconut I can just jump up and cut it down.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's foraging. <laughs> How about yourself, Daniel? Sorry, I'll 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 back up a sec. Do you do any foraging?
2: You know, I it's something I really want to get into. It's the idea of foraging is so attractive, unless you live in a place where everything's privately owned. (laughs) Um, it's just totally different than like if you were to go out west and forage. You know, it's it's completely different, and also the time of the year, and then the type of ingredients. Um, We do, out at our ranch, we do get wild dewberries, which are basically like blackberries, but we, I don't know if there's an actual distinction between the two, but we call them dewberries here. And then um, wild chilies. So we get the chili pequins. Have you heard of them?
1: Yep. Yeah, those are great.
2: Yeah, it's, I think it's the only native chili to North America. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it is. Um, It's like... Propagated by birds, so they call them bird chilies a lot. They're just tiny little chilies that, um, they grow wild around here a lot, and they're just absolutely awesome to make salsas, or, um, I pickle those a lot. But, um, yeah, that's, I haven't had any luck with mushrooms around here. I, definitely not in the Houston area. I've heard of people getting some chanterelles northeast of me. Um, and then I haven't seen any morels anywhere near my neck of the woods, but I I know there's some around Texas, but it's just private, a lot of private (laughs) land.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's challenging. My, uh, my family lives up in, in central and southeastern Oklahoma. And I just saw a picture on my, my little cousin's Instagram page. They're picking morels. So if there are any, they're starting to work their way, work their way that direction. Yeah. We run into that that private land issue down here too a lot. Um, in Florida, there's there's a lot of available public land and there's a lot of a lot of private land. I think public land access is probably one of the biggest issues. I mean, especially in the Keys, we face that uh, a lot because most of the Keys is owned, or you know, the military owns it, or it's a uh, uh, the majority of the Keys itself is kind of a a wildlife sanctuary, bird sanctuary as well. So there's all kinds of uh, rules and stuff that. That you have to follow here, and it's a sensitive environmental area as
3: well. Yeah, I'm gonna say the leaks are starting to pop up up here. Um, I've been eating leak pesto all week on on my French fries and stuff.
1: So, Corey, can you can you describe to me like I've been curious. I've never had. Um, I mean, I've had you certain leaks, right?
3: Yeah, they're also called ramps. Okay,
1: that's what. So I've had leaks. Like farm-grown leeks, same same family.
3: Yeah. Uh, I I'm honestly not sure. I know these type of leeks, you really can't um, grow them or farm them. the 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 soil conditions and moisture and everything has to be really specific. Um. So you can know, you find them in very certain places. Um. And it just happened last year while turkey hunting. Uh, we sat down to get set up on a bird, and, and I'm sniffing, and I, I smell onions, and I'm like, "We're sitting in a patch of leeks." So uh, <laughs> I have it's 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 a huge patch. So now I have my my leek spot that I go to every every spring to get them. So
1: that's awesome. How does it compare to like a, I guess a a domestic leek or a farm raised leek?
3: I I've never had a farm raised leaf but the the ones you the leeks you see in the store are like huge like these big yeah. thick stalks that are these are tiny so they're you know uh quarter inch diameter and you know the uh the white part's only a couple inches tall and then you know the leaves are there's two leaves coming off of them and uh they're, they're pretty small so um what i typically do is i cut the leaves off and Make the leaves into a pesto. I use uh, Hank Shaw's recipe for the pesto, and then uh, then I'll I'll pickle the the white part.
1: Oh, that sounds good.
3: Mm-hmm. But that, that's that's not all foraging that I do up this way. I don't trust any of the mushrooms.
1: I'm just so intimidated by the thought of uh, you know mushrooms. I know there's a lot of out there that aren't bad for you there's a lot that tastes good and then there's a few that can just outright kill you and i don't know
4: <laughs> be a wild ride can
1: try <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i i could probably also get into some trouble uh have to explain to some people <laughs> about my mushroom intake all right well let's uh let's circle back around to the talking about some uh necessities in the pantry daniel <laughs> you I'll let you uh, touch base <laughs> on that after we've uh, gone completely off the reservation here. <laughs>
2: um, God, I feel like there's a lot of different ways I could go about pantry essentials. I mean, there's the obvious things. Um, I could talk all day about how important salt is, um, but I'm not going to go that direction. Um, but I think other than that... I have a lot of oils and a lot of vinegars. I think having more than one oil with different smoke points or something that you choose for different cooking applications is important. But it's not essential. Um, I would say canned tomatoes are essential. I have, like, so many cans of, like, whole peeled tomatoes, crushed tomatoes, and a lot of um, tomato paste. Like, you can make so many things with tomato paste, or you can just... It's such a concentrated, umami, acidic flavor that can just do so many different things. I mean, I think there's, like, most of your recipes that are, like, really basic chili, meatloaf, tacos, sloppy joe, you know, like, all of that you can use... um, Tomato pasting. I I
1: think a lot of your international recipes, too, like that, that dances tomatoes, whole tomatoes and tomato paste dance around a lot of different, um, types of cuisine. Like it's versatile.
2: Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I mean, tomatoes are like, I you can make anything with a can of tomatoes. (laughs) So I, I, I keep a bunch of Tomatoes. Um, stocked in, in my pantry.
1: We we do the same here too. I, you know, I, uh, I was reading your article, um, talking about the essentials for the pantry the other day, and I w- was very appreciative of uh, the mention of oils, a different, a different. Uh, uh, oh my gosh, smoking points. And uh, I, to me, as, as a chef, like I remember that getting pounded into my head uh, when I was younger. It was a big craze. was everybody's olive oil, olive oil, and they switch, and then people are bouncing back and forth, I think, continuously. But at the time, the the big thing was grapeseed oil, and that really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I use that today. It's probably one of my, my favorite oils. You know, the price point and just the quality of it overall, I, I think, is really good. What's, what's generally kind of your go-to oil?
2: Um, I bounce between clarified butter, Avocado oil or coconut oil the most. I have a big jug of grapeseed oil, too. I would say, like, I have, I have like, I buy one, like, really good bottle of olive oil that I probably spend too much money on, <laughs> but I don't cook with it. Yeah. Like, there's, like, there's nothing more frustrating to me when I, like, like, I'm going to, I'm going to, um... My poor husband. Like, one time, he, like, he, he bought some olive oil from the grocery store, and he was cooking with it. And I was immediately like, what did you buy? And he's like, I just bought some, like, it was, like, some, like, the cheapest little bottle of olive oil. And I opened it and smelled it, and it smelled like a box of crayons. And I was like, smell oh. this. This is rancid. <laughs> oh, this no. is rancid olive oil. And so, like, I've always, ever since, you know, the, I guess I've cooked so much, and I can pick up on those smells of meat. I can taste it in the food. And so, like, I, I'm just at the point, like, I, I buy a nice bottle of olive oil, and that's just for, like, vinaigrettes and raw food eating, and I just savor it, and then I don't cook with it for anything else. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I would say avocado. Um, I use refined coconut oil for making comfy a lot, just because... I mean, my wild ducks don't have enough fat to do, to do a, like a true comfy, And I'm not just gonna go buy a ton of expensive duck fat whenever I want it. So, refined coconut oil is pretty neutral in flavor. Um, and it just has a really nice consistency that's, um, similar, I think, to, to duck fat. And so I use, you could buy like a massive tub of refined coconut oil for $10. And just have endless batches of comfy with it, um,
1: but yeah. That's it. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm. Uh, <laughs> that's a good uh, variety of oils to have on on hand. Um, what about dry ingredients? What types of dry ingredients do you think are essential for the the pantry?
2: Oh, I guess my answer is probably not going to be essential. But I'm a Texas girl, so I have a lot of dried chilies. Um, I just like, what? I do a lot with dried chilies. Um, either just red grinding it up and, uh, red.
4: Okay.
2: Yeah, mostly like ancho, guajillo, um, pasilla, um, but I like to make harissa paste, the North African condiment, um, and obviously a lot of, like, Mexican type of chili paste. Um, so I use that a lot in my cooking, but I think that's just because of where I live. And whenever we're, like, in this situation where we're not going out to eat and I start to think about the things that you really love to eat that you're not going to a restaurant to get, for me, that's, that's like, a solid Tex-Mex meal. Um, I'm like I need need that stuff, so um, I always have have chilies in the pantry. Um, I also like having mushrooms too, which I don't think a lot of people think about, but mushrooms can really really add a lot of depth and earthiness, and it pairs so so well with wild game. They're like just a match in heaven.
1: And you're um, you're talking about dried mushrooms in particular, correct? Or just yep, okay. yeah. Uh, I experimented, experimented a little with the the dried mushrooms. I think a lot, you know, living in when I lived on the west coast down in San Diego, um, we had the availability of all the different uh, Asian stores, the uh, groceries, and man, the the amount and types and varieties of mushrooms, dried uh, and even fresh, but more so dried, and just being able to make something as simple as like a mushroom broth and try that out and see how the difference between two or three or different types of mushrooms is just sort of, it, it's an amazing thing. And I, I agree with you a hundred percent that not a lot of people have that on hand or even think about it. And I think some people may even find it a little intimidating, which, which I would try to persuade people not to let the dried mushrooms intimidate them.
2: I think it's because when you see a dried morel or a dried porcini, you see a big price tag and you're immediately like, no, that's ridiculous. Um, but I can get dried shiitakes for like a bag of them for $5 and I'll, I'll use like one or two out of like the whole bag and pulse it in a spice grinder and have like a little jar of dried... And I mix them... Um, I, I me back up here I take like the dried mushrooms um, put it in a spice grinder grind it to a powder and then I mix it in my spice blends with like steak rubs um, but that's just like two little mushrooms and that goes a really long way and then a couple more mushrooms I'll, I'll rehydrate and make a broth and make a sauce with it and it's like that one little $5 bag man I've made it stretch for like so many like for a really long time several meals Um, but it definitely depends on what type of mushroom
1: you choose. So let me ask you this. So in in the pantry, do you ever end up with really odd ingredients? Like you only may use once and then you, you find it a month or so later and you're like, I need to rotate this out and maybe use it for a special meal just to kind of get it out of the pantry. Do you ever run across that? Yeah,
2: I do. Like, I've got a big jar of Tsuchimi Togarashi, a Japanese blend that, like, I get through phases where it seems like I'm using it once a week, and then I just, I saw it the other day, and I was like, I haven't used this in a few months. Um, there's stuff like that. It's usually, like, when I buy, every time I go to um a store, like, in Houston, we're so lucky to have these, like. Amazing cultural grocery stores where I can get Korean, um, Japanese, Vietnamese, um, a lot of Middle Eastern grocery stores. And so every time I'm there, I'm like grabbing things. I'm like, I don't even know what this is, but I'm I'm grabbing it to play with. Um, and so I have like barberry, dried barberries right now, which is like this super, super tiny dried berry that's very, very tart. Um, in Middle Eastern cooking, and like the first time I tried it, I was it was really puckery. Um, but I started putting it inside the grains when I was cooking grains. I would like throw a a handful in there, and it was just like, man, that just like that acidity and the cooking liquid with the grains just like made such a huge difference. and um, those are the things that I don't mess with a lot, and I have some random stuff in the pantry, but when I remember they're there and I start playing around, I, I really appreciate having the variety for sure.
1: I think I have, uh, that's probably one of my go-tos is sort of, you know, talking a little bit about cooking without recipes and stuff and playing off of that. And I think that's definitely, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on who's eating is, is, a. Uh, is what plays into what. Because I'll look in the pantry. If it's just something to come up to the top of my head and I have the time to sort of be creative, I'll go through the pantry or through the the fridge and see, all right, you know, what's... First off, what's going to pair well together? Second off, like, what, what have I maybe not utilized? Obviously, it, it was special enough at one point or another, or such a staple at one point that it made its way into the pantry or into the refrigerator. So now, what is that that I can play on to sort of bring that uniqueness and that specialness back out to serve you know my guests or my family and I think it's all I feel everyone probably has those odds and ends and you guys feel free to correct me if I'm wrong but it's always interesting to see because it's usually like you need it for one specific you know a teaspoon in a recipe or and you end up with a whole jar of it and it's just kind of there because you you don't really know but I guess I encourage people to sort of dig into your pantry and sort through some of the essentials and see like hey what you know what is this what what can i do with it what how can i make it special again
2: absolutely and i and i always tell people like don't forget google is your friend (laughs) like if you have a spice that you've used once and you don't know what else to do with it or or whatever ingredient you find like a weird grain or a bean google like how many google recipes for that um And you'd be surprised, like, you'll find, like, an endless amount of information on it. And that's all it takes to get you, like, cooking without a recipe, I guess, is to just know that so many things are really interchangeable um, and and just can be used in so many different ways.
0: You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13.
1: So what would your tips be for, for cooking without a recipe? Aside from, from utilizing Google whenever you need to.
2: Well, I think the first thing you should know is don't be afraid to fail. (laughs) I think a lot of people are just afraid to just start doing it. Um, Frankly, they're just like intimidated maybe. Um, That's the first thing is just get used to screwing food up and eating bad food. Just get used (laughs) to that. (laughs) I do it all the time. (laughs)
3: It's
1: it's a confidence level, and I I, I don't know, it's – I think because there's monetary value to it, maybe people get sort of, you know, they don't want to mess it up. They invested time and they invested money into it, and I I mean that's understandable. Nobody wants to eat bad food, but I always, everybody I've trained and everybody I've worked with, I'm like, look, the the first step, confidence. We're all gonna make bad food. It's okay as long as we're not serving it to like paying customers and it's bad. You know, keep the mistakes in the kitchen, but you know, otherwise, just try.
2: Absolutely. Um, how do you, you know, I've I've been thinking about, I think about this all the time. How do I teach someone to cook without a recipe? And I mean, I I remember when I was teaching myself, I decided like to, like spice jars. I I wanted to have all matching clear glass spice jars. And so I decided not to put a label on anything. So it would force myself to smell every ingredient. And that when I learned to start smelling things and like relying on senses, I just realized that the cooking process was, was all about your intuition and, um, just really relying on that and, and knowing that there are no real hard lines in cooking. I think you do need to have a grasp on foundations on how to do things. But other than that, everything else is really exploratory
1: i agree i think that's what definitely makes it an art too um i think for me looking at cooking without a recipe probably would be like you mentioned i think smells versus taste how's this going to combine with the other ingredients and i i'll smell i'll go back and forth and smell as i'm going if i'm going to add an ingredient into a dish as it's cooking um Uh, one big thing is who I'm cooking for. I kind of try to think about that ahead. Um, Like, for instance, my wife eats fish and vegetables. She's not a a meat eater at all. Uh, But my daughter and myself uh, eat wild game. And, you know, I eat a lot of domestic meat as well. But, you know, who's the audience? What are they going to appreciate most? Because that's kind of a a big thing. That's a I don't know if if food was – if they created a sixth love language, it would be food, and that would be my love language (laughs) because that's how I I try to talk to people. Um, But I think about that, who am I cooking for, how much time I have, and then as I gather ingredients, sort of looking at my essentials in the pantry, looking at those odds and ends, looking at what's fresh and what's seasonal, um, that sort of builds the structure of what I'm gonna create and then sometimes it's just completely shooting from the hip and I you know I agree with you it's 100% the way to go it's an art form you make it your own it's no different than an artist painting a mural Dustin what what are your thoughts on tips for cooking without a recipe
4: well one thing so I got my own opinions but one thing to bring up which some people might not know that you do a lot of your tasting with your nose so when she's saying you know, smell every spice. That, that's a strong, I guess, mechanism for your body to know what's going to taste good is your nose. Um, I've, I've definitely done that a lot. One of <laughs> and I gotta go once again. Dill. I love dill. It smells <laughs> so good. <laughs> I use it on anything. It's like Frank's Red Hot. But, yeah, I've, I've done that where I'm, where I kind of say this smells like it would go good or I try to, sometimes I'll try to pair, uh, Really rich greens with certain meats. I think that they're going to, uh, complement each other. But the hardest thing for me is since joining us with you is writing things down and portioning it. Out. I almost feel more comfortable just trying it, like winging it. And, and I, I really don't, don't care if I fail. Um, I feel like if I'm making something, like, you know what? That sounds like it'd be really good with this. I'm going to throw some in. And most of the time, it's a satisfying result. The hard part is when I sit back, like, all right, how do I measure? I just did a pinch. You know, I sprinkled this much on it till it felt right, until it smelled good. So taking that step back and writing down, like, all right, this can feed this many people. This is this much of a measurement. That's the hardest part for me.
2: That's the hard part for anybody. Like, when I started going from cooking to wanting to actually share
3: recipes,
2: the, um, the development process was like, it was a little hard for me to jump to because I had cooked so long without a recipe, without writing anything down, and I, I was like, how do I, how do I tell people what I just did? <laughs> um, and I ended up having to just like, read a lot of cookbooks all over again just to read the language, but, um, yeah, that, that's hard, just learning the right things down. Um, I thought of another tip that helps me. Um, when I think about flavor pairings, I always, or I guess, let me back that up, not flavor. When I think about taste, um, I think about the five tastes that you have, and you have salty, sweet, sour, sour. Um, My mine just went blank. Palsy, tweet. Somebody help me here. He's the fifth. Um, um, Anyway, but I always think about the balance between fat and acid. Um, Just like I tell people you never need to ever buy a bottle of salad dressing. Um, When you're trying to cook something, tasting, 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 you're going to start noticing something's missing. And you're going to immediately think oh I need to add salt but salt is really just an enhancer for flavor it doesn't actually have the taste it just enhances whatever you're already tasting so if you think something's missing more more than likely it's acid and I think a lot of people don't understand this like having just the tiniest little um squeeze of a citrus like a lime or a lemon or like a splash of vinegar and the sauce that you're making just just a tiny bit goes like wonders for your cooking Um, so I always think about things and formulas and when when I think about balancing that I know that I personally like a one to two ratio of one part acidity to two parts fat um, whenever I'm making anything which is on the acidic side of things, but um, but I always like consider that ratio in my head. So when I'm tasting a sauce that I want to put on food or or anything that I'm making, I'm like, what's missing? And I almost always think it just needs more acidity. Um, so that would be a tip with cooking without a recipes. Make sure you have acidic ingredients in your pantry, like vinegar, vinegars or. Lemons or limes or something like
1: that. I think that's a that's a good tip for sure. I'm trying to think if I have another one. Oh, so uh, uh, to go back to the pantries and essential. So this is a tip for cooking without a recipe, as well as it hits on an essential for my pantry is, is uh sort of the protein, vegetable, starch, sauce that that classic, sorry, classic cooking uh, ideal. And to me, it's always to kind of have a starch too. Um, so rice not as much potatoes, probably more rice in my house, but um I think always thinking about the starch but not overdoing the starch. You get a lot of meals that are made for a lot of people and they're very starch heavy. You know, last last episode we talked a lot, we didn't talk, we debated jambalaya and the fact that it's sort of meant to be a shared meal between a large group of people. It's it's very easy to do in that manner. But also thinking about, like, what do I want out of a meal when I'm creating it without a recipe? And I don't want to overdo it by being like, you know, here's your vegetables, here's your meat. And then all of a sudden, here's half a plate of rice to where somebody's, you know, may fill up on there. I guess everybody's got their preference if they're going to enjoy it or not. But in my mind, uh, the starch being important is still kind of towards the, the lower end of my priorities when I'm cooking.
2: I was gonna say I think a good thing to think about is a lot of people think of starch as just rice, potatoes. Um, there's a lot of other really starchy vegetables out there. Yep. <laughs> um, once I, I started um changing my diet up a few years ago and I experimented with with everything out there, uh, just to see what made me feel the best and I I went paleo for a little while and I like just fell in love with roasted turnips, roasted radishes, roasted carrots and parsnips and all those root vegetables um, are really fulfilling too. Um, but that's just something else to think about when you're rummaging through your pantry is, is is knowing that there are a lot of other types of starches out there besides just the... Um, the beans
1: or the or whatever. So this one, I, I think where, where we all live, except for the exception of Cory, maybe. Cory, do they still have root cellars? Is that a, a predominant thing up there in Pennsylvania?
3: Uh, I've heard of them, but I haven't seen one recently. Maybe in the old old houses, old farmhouses.
1: I'm just wondering if, if that's still... Talking about pantries and sort of moving... Moving subterranean, if people still using root cellars a lot. I mean, maybe people have farms and stuff, but I, I don't know if I could see people going and buying cases of of root vegetables and storing them. But uh, it's a possibility, I guess. Um, I do. Yeah, parsnips are huge. I love those things. They're just uh, they're pretty tasty.
2: They are. They're one of my
1: favorites. So. Definitely, like I said, parsnips are really good. Probably one of my favorite ways to prepare parsnips uh, is roasting them, as you mentioned, but roast them is especially too on uh, the Traeger. I find myself roasting a lot of vegetables, not just using it for uh, ribs or brisket or wild game roast or burgers or even desserts. Um, I kind of have that go-to where throwing vegetables in there on a daily basis to, uh, to cook them up, add some spices get a good nice smoke flavor on them is really good and I, I enjoy the the variety and quality of the pellets that traeger has as well you can use different combinations with your vegetables to get uh, different flavors and the wood flavors themselves come out uh, with your vegetable preparation as well so something pretty good another useful tool to have in the repertoire in your kitchen sort of looking i'm curious so now we're moving into spring, which is uh, every turkey hunter's favorite part of the year, unless you have fall turkey hunting. But um, we uh, we had plans down here. Uh, Colin and I. Colin couldn't be on today, but he and I were headed up, scheduled to head up this weekend to go hunt uh, one of the wildlife management areas in uh, southern Florida. Colin drew a, a turkey hunting tag up there, and they let you take a guest hunter with you. But unfortunately, due to everything going on, um, because both Dustin, Colin, and myself, were all in the military, they've, they've restricted us to, to Key West so we can't travel outside of, uh, outside of the county or, or the close area without that. So it's kind of put the kibosh on our turkey hunting plans. But uh, I'm excited to talk turkey, I guess, a little bit.
2: I didn't know you couldn't leave the county.
1: Yeah, we're uh, no. Nope. Yeah, they they put a restriction. Actually, Dustin can't even leave his house.
3: <laughs>
2: wow! Did you like? Did you uh, did you just leave from overseas or?
4: No, I I had a common cold, like legit. I didn't. I had one symptom, which was a cough, and it wasn't even persistent cough. And they played it so safe that they're like, all right, self quarantine. Um, I did just get off it. Just got off it, but for over a week, I've been sitting in here. Waiting for medical to clear me, 'cause I told them uh, I feel fine. It's just a cold. We have allergies. It's flu season anyway. You're gonna get a lot of false positives. Trust me. If I get, if I get two symptoms, I'll 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 be the first one in there. So they just did it as precautionary, but it's a pain in the butt. You know, I, I like to go for long runs. So staying in my house for a week straight was uh, no bueno. But that's why I picked up a lot of these old skills and learned how to cook. <laughs> All this stuff we made the key lime pie from scratch. I had to make our own, we didn't have whipped cream, I couldn't go out and get any, so I had to make whipped cream from heavy whipping cream, Um, so it's it's been pretty (laughs) interesting here.
1: I saw somebody post the other day on Facebook, they're like, how are you managing your stress? And I'm like, well, I've cooked everything in my house, so...
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what it is, but I've eaten more in the last few weeks than I ever have. I don't know why. I mean, I, I've been working from home for two years. But this is the first time my husband's worked from home with me. And so I'm like, this is fun. I get to cook you breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. But I find myself just being like, we're both just wanting to eat all day long.
1: <laughs> yeah, I run into that too. And uh, I've been lucky enough. So I've been on paternity leave, which ends on Monday. But I've been able to go off base and go run. And I was working out of the gym until the gym's closed. But... Um, trying to make the best of it. It's a it's a challenging time to be in right now. Um, I think for even for people, you know, hunting and fishing, but just just your average person who's going to the, the grocery store and there's not what they want there.
3: So
4: yeah,
3: I'm, I think it's going to improve my hunting as I'm working from home. Um, I'm able to uh, get out in the woods and do a lot more turkey scouting since I don't have to go into the office every morning. So uh, I'm uh, waking up early, and we're getting on the mountain bikes, getting in deep to do some scouting tomorrow morning.
4: Something I saw that's been going around, a lot of posts on social media about how so many people are staying in their houses now, that animals are getting braver and venturing out. they got like bobcats going through cities and things like that. But if you think about the footprint of people over the last two weeks has really drastically dropped. So you're probably going to have some like way better chances
3: this time around with all the people being absent. Uh, I'd, we live in a rural area. I think a lot of people, I think it's going to be more hunting pressure. More people are doing what I'm doing, getting out and scouting uh, okay. more. I,
1: I tell you one thing, though, the absence of people has not helped my fishing any at all. I've been going fishing every evening. I haven't (laughs) caught any yet.
4: (laughs) I'm still popping iguanas daily.
1: So yeah, talking turkey. Uh, Daniel, do you have any turkey turkey hunting plans in the recent or recent, the near future?
2: No, I don't. I mean, we we well, no, actually, neither one of us. Um, I didn't draw a public land tag here in Texas, and I'm I'm not gonna drive out of state. Um. To hunt and it's just we've got like one friend who um, offered turkey hunting up a, a while back but things have changed like I'm not like real excited to like I don't know to to meet I don't know it's, it's just this year is a little weird um
1: but no I'm
2: not gonna I'm not gonna uh, turkey hunt this year so. I'm a little
1: bummed about it. I am too. I was looking. not that I know of.
2: There's always something that might pop
1: up unexpectedly. Yep. That usually happens. <laughs> I uh, my my plan this year was for the since I'm in Florida and they have here, so I'm now a Florida resident. But they also have a part of the licensing for hunting and fishing. It's called the military. Was it Dustin Military Sportsman's Gold or something like that? But yeah. That's it. You essentially get, you get all the licenses to do everything. And, uh, it's a pretty unique thing that I think a lot of, uh, active duty military in Florida should take advantage of. If they don't go get your hunter safety, get out there, try it out. I mean, it's, it's really inexpensive to get the license and stuff too, but the Osceola Turkey that they have here in Florida, I was like, I've got one more year here and I absolutely want to put that notch on my belt, um... Cause you know, I, it's kind of a, so not an out of the way place, but I don't know that I'd be, Hey, I'm going to go travel to Florida specifically, you know, during Turkey season. So that was my plan. We'll, we'll see if it comes through. There's still going to be a little bit of time in the season. I hope, I don't know. I guess it depends on how quickly everything passes, but the one thing I was looking forward to most though, was getting some, some fresh wild Turkey in the, uh, in the freezer so i had some good recipes in mind for that uh do you have a typical go-to turkey recipe danielle
2: i've done something different with every single turkey (laughs) i feel like you get one turkey and i'm like i want to make the most out of everything this turkey has and every year i'm like let's do this let's do so again there's not like a single one recipe that i'm like doing over and over again um But I do the same applications, um, if that makes sense. Um, I like pan roasting the breast, which is basically where I just sear it on a stovetop, flip it, usually baste it with butter, and then transfer it to the oven to finish cooking. It gives... um, You you get better, even more even cooking that way. Um, You obviously are going to end up with with a not... If you were to, like, cook a whole breast on the stovetop, you would basically char the outsides by the time the inside was cooked to temperature. And so doing it in the oven um, gives, gives that radiant heat and allows for equal distribution. But I like starting it on the stovetop so that I can develop brown flavors on one side and then flipping it and then transferring to the oven. That's something I do a, quite a bit um, with thicker cuts of meat. Um but I sous vide, you can't go wrong because turkey sometimes can be a little tough and dry. So sous vide cooking at that low constant temperature can really um, help you retain that moisture and keep it from being squeezed out when the heat's too high. Um, and then the, the greatest. Go ahead.
1: I, I was gonna ask. Sorry. On yeah, on the uh, the sous vide. What's I guess what's your general. Do you add anything in there to help with the moisture content before you seal it up?
2: I haven't sous vide a bre- of, of turkey breast yet, but I don't. I don't add fat because when I think about cooking something sous vide, a lot of juices do come out of the meat, and so it's almost like you're braising it inside mm-hmm. of its little bag. And so, I don't think that adding fat is unless the whole thing is fat, like a kung-fi method, Um, I honestly have started to just add some sort of aromatic, um, usually like a garlic clove that's smashed and then some herbs in there. And then I started adding a little bit of stock into the bag whenever I cook. And so when you're done... You can sear the meat to finish, and then you have, like, this condensed, really rich broth left over in the bag from all the meat juices, and then, of course, the stock can increase its flavor from the aromatics, and then I make, like, a little pan sauce at the end that's just totally effortless. Um, That's something I've been doing lately with a lot of different cuts of meat.
1: Going with, like, the almost reverse sear. And then using the pan sauce. Let's... Yep. Yeah.
2: Yep. And I'm like, well, it's already got so much juices in the back while it's braising. Like, why not just add another half cup to it? And now you've got, like, this really fantastic um, sauce from the braising liquids that um, you glaze the pan with.
1: I just recently got a sous vide. I, uh, I, we use them in the restaurant. I remember when they first – started becoming popular kind of back 2010 uh, i was cooking in san diego and it was the first time i'd ever seen one and they were just doing lobster tails in them, but oh man they came out so great and then i've kind of seen the popularity grow and i followed it and i was ah, back and forth back and forth whether or not i was going to get one and then this year at the beginning of the year i finally got one and and just playing around with the recipes oh man it's just it's it's wonders
2: It really does, and I think there's a lot of like hype about it, and then there's a lot of like negativity about like, oh, you're not really learning to cook, and I understand that from, I understand that from a cooking aspect, but also I think when you're talking about wild game, you're comparing apples to oranges with a domestic animal that's been raised a certain way to only live a very short life, not moving, eating a lot more food, and you've got like a completely different texture of meat. Um, and wild game really does benefit from that low, low heat that sous vide gives. Um, I think it's just so easy for wild game to dry out because there's really no fat in there to make up for that moisture loss. And so sous vide really does do a great job with wild game.
1: Yeah, and I think even to the, uh, I think your sous vide in a lot of aspects can take the place of of a brine. I would say because I, in brining some of the game meats to add that extra moisture back in before you cook, um, yeah, I, I like that the sous vide can do that because sometimes you could get uh an imbalance in your brine and that sort of can throw the meat one way or the other after it's done and the time investment of it is is a lot versus like the sous vide I I feel like a little more reliable
2: yeah yeah that's a you brought up a really good point for anybody who's who uh does hunt a lot of turkey I would always I I'm a huge proponent of brining Especially if you're gonna like smoke it, grill it, anything like that, like any kind of dry heat, um, I think brining is a really good option. But you're right when you're when you're doing a sous vide in liquids at such a low temperature, you're kind of cutting out a step that you don't necessarily need.
1: Yeah, I just it, you got to make that time commitment uh, to do the sous vide is sort of it. You got to think ahead, and I, I think that's a, a key point to bring up to a lot of people because they may not it takes some thinking that way you don't end up with a gadget that's just on the shelf. Cause you know, but there's lots of stuff you can do with it in the wild game world. And then outside in just the regular kitchen world too. I think mm-hmm. I did, uh, most recently a, uh, so we have these really amazing shrimp down here. Have you ever been to Key West Danielle?
2: No, I haven't.
1: Oh, you got to make it down after, after all the travel bands clear up, come down for a visit we <laughs> have uh, we have these shrimp down here key west pink shrimp they're from the atlantic side they get them on like the the sand flats oh my gosh they're the cleanest like mm. crisp tasting shrimp uh probably top three shrimp uh my favorite shrimp it's it's probably number one or number two and it kind of goes back and forth between like the louisiana gulf shrimp but these shrimp uh, took and actually made a New Orleans dish with it in the sous vide, like the New Orleans barbecued shrimp, uh, which is not really any barbecue sauce at all. So it's a name kind of misleading, but uh, using those shrimp in the sous vide and just to let them cook in there. Oh gosh, they just they were a sponge and just soaked up the flavor from all the uh, the ingredients and the spices and and everything that was mixed in in the bag.
2: Uh, sounds amazing. Is that anything like? I've had Argentine shrimp
1: that were pink. Oh, you yeah, have the. Argen- they were
2: really sweet.
1: Yeah, the Argentinian reds.
2: Yeah, maybe that's what it was. Yep. Yeah,
1: it's similar. So, um, they oh, with the Argentinian reds, I think are are they more of a warm water? I forget the way it works. the The profiles uh, similar. I find that the pinks have a cleaner. Crisper, I don't know how to describe it. Dustin, can you? Any well, help they're
4: me? still sweet too, but yeah, it's it's not tough. It, it's yeah. well, okay. It, it's hard to use that word. They're they're not too tough to chew like a gizzard tough. But <laughs> you when you bite into it, it's it's firmer and it, it has like a snap when you bite it. Um, it's easy to chew, but it's <laughs> it's really hard to describe. It's amazing. It's mouth watering, and now I'm getting hungry. But it's um. It's a, like a heartier shrimp. A uh, little bit sweeter, I think, personally. Um, and I think a lot of the the sea life like that is sweeter here. Like the lobster is much sweeter
1: I than the lobster it. up north. We've had this debate. We've had this debate. I don't know if you
4: <laughs> <on that. laughs> he, like, he likes main lobster and all that better, but I, I love the lobster down here. It's, it's, it's good. You've you got to understand, down here, Like we eat... Don't have the hunting game. Uh, We have to go north to hunt hogs. The deer here are protected.
1: Well, in the Keys, yeah.
4: Other than yeah, other than fishing to your heart's desire, you can reach under a rock, pull out a lobster. Um, You can eat iguana. Some people kind of squirm away from it, but they're they're tasty. Uh, And then there's all the the what does an
2: iguana taste like? Is it like just like a just a reptile, like frog or snake or?
4: Yeah, uh, a little bit like like snake, but it, it really holds the flavor of what you cook. Right. I did some I, I cooked tacos with coconut oil, and it came out really sweet. I did some, um, I, I fried some with uh, the the crispy coconut breading, and it almost tasted like oh, coconut.
1: Yeah,
3: shrimp.
4: So it really holds the flavor very well of what you cook it with.
1: I think it's, uh, uh, but it, it, it's like middle of the road between I would say chicken and frog legs almost kind of like rattlesnake but a little more rubbery.
2: So is there like a limit like a like a slot limit on iguanas?
1: <laughs> nope. No, it's it's, oh, so you, yeah. it's like Go a free for all. Yeah, it's they're invasive species, so the the Florida Wildlife Commission came out last year and was like if you can safely kill iguanas, take as many as you want and we encourage it because they're invasive and they just they do tons of damage here. What do you mean they do damage? Well they, they eat a lot of crops. I mean we have minimal well we don't have minimal crops in South Florida because you get once you get back onto the mainland and sort of uh, west of Miami, you have a lot of farmland uh, there. so they get into crops, they dig their burrows and seawalls, so they do a lot of damage to I guess like uh, civil engineering type projects. Um, they carry salmonella too. We didn't know that, Dustin. I don't know if you know that. All those. Uh, well,
4: yeah, so actually, of of all reptiles, iguanas are one of the safest levels of salmonella. I mean, I still I still boil the crap out of them, but
1: yeah. I mean, overall, they they weren't here at all. Um, up until how's it go, Dustin? About ten years ago, they started coming in. Yeah,
4: and they breed like rabbits.
1: <laughs> yeah, they think they they floated over from. Somewhere in the Caribbean or somewhere in Central America, uh, with one of the hurricanes. There's a lot of research trying to figure out exactly how they got introduced into Florida, um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's pretty wild, and they're they're everywhere. I mean, down here in Key West, they're as prevalent as the chickens are that wander the streets here too. <laughs> Some people roast
4: them just on the grill, but they have they have white and dark meat, which is interesting. Um, I'm not a fan of the dark meat, which is basically the arms and the legs, but they, are back strap equivalent, like down the, their spine, and then the base of the tail is like the most meat. So if you get a good size iguana, some of these iguanas get up to like four feet. Um.
2: Oh uh, my uh, god. I've shot a what couple you, of three footers like? out here.
4: I shoot them with a bow. Ah. It, it's easy. You it's quiet.
2: You shoot so many iguanas. <laughs> you make
4: it well, I like shooting them with a bow because it pins them to the ground and I can walk over and collect them. <laughs>
2: Oh, I'm learning so much. (laughs) Interesting. Iguanas.
1: Yeah, I I bet you didn't think you were going to learn this much about iguanas or any about iguanas. No.
2: No, I mean, you know, there's just so much diversity. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's also weird to think about how things like hurricanes affect, um, fisheries and, and just the wildlife in general. Like, um, since we, we lived in North Dakota for a while and we moved down here a couple of years ago, and my husband's an avid fly, fish, fly fisherman, and we, we fish for redfish a lot. And it's like, it's just been interesting the more we learn about it to see how, um, the hurricanes in recent years have just changed the fisheries. And honestly, some of it's a little for the better. Um, the way I think they wash the eggs further up inshore, and they're able to, like, start, not breed in um, brackish water, but they can survive in brackish water. And then they kind of go back out to the ocean. But it's just interesting to think about.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we saw a lot. After Hurricane Irma and, um, a couple of years ago, uh, I just got down here the year before, but I think the most prevalent we saw was the lobster, the effect on the lobster population. Um, a lot of people expected them to sort of get uh, wiped out because they they missed a good portion of the season. And with a lot of of juveniles that came into you know into maturity ready to be harvested and then people not harvesting them so there was a big debate whether they were a lot of them got killed due to the storm or they were going to be more prevalent the following year because they had basically skipped a month or so of people plucking them out of the water and truth be told the population bounced back pretty rapidly i think don't quote me but i think it was slightly above above normal and hey they say that that was probably a con- contribution to that that month off but it was just interesting to see the fearful debate was also too so here in key west we have the spiny lobster and the majority of our lobster that are harvested commercially so you have the recreational side where you can go out and you can take six lobster a day of the legal size uh, per person during the season. On the commercial side, you know, they have their own regulations, but the the majority of the lobster are sold to China. And it, it's, yeah, yeah it, it's crazy. They sell their, I think, what is it? The, the fishermen at one, the fishermen are making 18 to $20 a pound on the lobster. And then they're selling, or they were selling. This is a couple years ago because I think, with the, well, with the COVID stuff, and then before that, with the trade agreements and stuff going on, uh, the price before that I think was like twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight dollars a pound uh, for lobster, live lobster from the Keys, flown directly to China. It was, uh, it was pretty crazy.
2: Wow. Yeah.
1: Grab one. <laughs> Dustin, would you say that lobster is your favorite fish? I guess it's not a fish. I guess it's not a fish, but
4: a crustacean. crustacean yeah, yeah, but <laughs> it, it, is my, it is my favorite because just so, to paint a picture for people who aren't familiar, Key West is, is, you know, the end of a string of island chains that goes down south of Florida. But if you look at our island alone, if you look west, we have the Gulf, and then we have the Atlantic off to the east, Right. Two, a four-mile island, but just four miles away is a totally different way of hunting. So you go to one, one side, and they're all under large coral heads and, and any kind of rocky surface, any kind of rock under docks. You go to the other side, go to the Gulf side, and they're in holes and, like, little ledges, and they hide totally different. Um, it's, it's a really fun sport. You don't need to have you don't need to have be scuba certified. You don't need to have fancy equipment out here. You can literally go like a mile, half mile out and it's still like four, or six feet deep in certain areas. So you can take a 10 minute boat trip, go out of what we call it out in the back country area and you get out there. And depending on the time of day and the tide, you could be only way steep in water, like at low tide. So it's easy enough to hold your breath and go down and, and harvest these guys. Um, they made a nice little gauge for you to measure to make sure that they're the right size. You hold the gauge up if it if it doesn't shut down on them, if it doesn't squeeze their, their body in between it, and they're good to keep. Um, throw them in the bag and go. And you can have six per day. So a lot of people out here can just snorkel out off the coast. You might find a rock, see the little antenna sticking out, catch it, measure it, and you got you got a meal.
2: That's so awesome.
1: It's a, it's, it's really like a fascinating concept and people come here by the droves to do it, but we've we've definitely promoted Key West a lot in this episode, which was not my intention, but just happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well,
4: and then think about it though. Everything you can harvest during the season, you got to have a little bit of knowledge about it. You can say, all right, I'm going out for lobster and then you get down there. Oh, boom. There's a, a stone crab. I can take one of its claws. And then I'll throw it back, it'll regenerate it, and I get to eat that one. Oh, there's another stone crab. Oh, you know, look, there's a fish over there. Throw me the spear gun. So you're not just limited to one thing. Like when you go deer hunting, you got your tag, you're sitting up there, you're waiting, or you're spotting, stalking, or however you hunt. But you're mainly going out for one thing. Out here, especially with, the with our, like he mentioned, the sportsman's gold package, you can harvest a lot of different animals and bring back a, a feast.
2: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Do y'all set? Do you set crab traps? Yeah, I have a uh, stone crab traps out. Um, and you get you get the claw. You could get, get take the the regulations. You could take both claws off um, if it's within the legal size. But I I don't know. I feel I feel bad about that because that then it has no way to defend itself or any other thing. So I generally just take one claw and then throw it back. Yeah. <laughs> We we're talking you were talking fly fishing for redfish, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I I know there's a lot of a lot of back and forth talk about people eating or not eating, catch and release or catch and eat. And we've had some conversations about that. But um do you eat eat the redfish?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> Um, it's in the slut size, yeah.
1: i right, sorry. Sorry if that question struck you wrong, or struck you odd. I just...
2: No, I didn't know that people were thrown back.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's, I mean, uh...
2: people, like, the big drums, the the big drums, um, people throw back because they can get pretty wormy, but are you talking about for, like, ethics of just the catch and release?
1: Yeah, I guess so.
2: Yeah, no, we... Not where we fish. It's not something that we, um, I mean, when we're fly fishing, it's not like you're out there just reeling them all in like a big <laughs> caster where you're just like filling your boat up. You know, you get yep. three fish. And, and like a lot of times we go and like, you know, we're lucky to get one. And sometimes we get three at the fishing, you know, sometimes we get our limit each time. But it's, it's not like, No, I don't, I don't feel, like, guilty or bad about it at all. Um, in fact, I know, like, people, some people, like, JT Van Zandt, almost pushes for, like, um, not taking more fish, but reducing the slot size and keeping the smaller fish, because the bigger ones are breeding. Yeah. Um, but that's all a little, getting into, a little over my head. Sure. Um. When it comes to the conservation side of things, but no, I definitely keep my fish because, like I said, like, we're catching them all on the fly. It's, it's definitely not the same as, as, um, casting them out there with a bait cast or your traditional type of fishing. But, um, and they're awesome. They're my favorite fish to eat. <laughs> One of my favorites. Maybe not, maybe not the best. I mean, I've had some butterfish uh, out there, but...
1: Um, What's your favorite way to uh, to prepare?
2: <laughs> I mean, the best way to eat it is right when you get back from fishing over a fire on the half shell with nothing, you know, nothing fancy, just some lemon, squeeze a lemon and some salt and pepper because there's just something really... Satisfying about that, I think it, it, maybe it's because it's just um sort of the minimalist approach to something that has been like a tradition around around the Gulf area to eat it that way i think I think a lot of the reason why it's so satisfying is because it's it's just sort of the rooted in our culture to cook it on a half shell like that. If anybody who's listening is not familiar with cooking on the half shell. Redfish scales are extremely hard and tough, unlike um, other types of fish, and and they can be really tough to scale, and so you don't even bother doing that. You literally just take one filet off without without scaling it, and then you cook it on the skin, on the grill, scales on everything, Um, plenty of oil, and then that skin and those scales basically act as a heat as a cooking vessel for of sorts for the fish, and then um, a, tra- a barrier to the heat transfer, and so like all the moisture sort of stays in, and like the edges of the the skin start to kind of curl up and around, and it's like just this nice little boat of of uh, fish in its own juices. It's awesome.
1: <laughs> you painted a good picture. I can I can picture sitting by like waterside with a nice campfire and cooking uh cooking fish. Oh man. Now that sounds good. I'm hungry. I made Dustin's mistake that he made last week and I didn't eat before we started the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm hungry. <laughs> Dan, I'm really really happy that you came on here and chatted with us today. It was it was awesome having you here uh just passing on some of your knowledge and and your tips and tricks. Uh it's quite the experience, I'd say.
2: Yeah, I thank you for having me. I I feel like I learned a lot about the Key West. I had a girlfriend not long, just visit the Key West, and she had so many great things to say. And she's not a fisherman or a hunter or anything, and so like she just had a lot to say about the community. But now that I know, I can lobster dive. Yeah, (laughs) I might have to take a vacation. Get some iguanas while yeah, I'm there.
1: Maybe we can have a, uh, a combo package, lobster diving and iguana tacos.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm actually more interested in the iguanas just because I've never had them.
1: Well, there's there's plenty of them. We're, I don't think they're going to go anywhere. <laughs> <So>.
4: <laughs> we do have the recipe on the Harvesting Nature uh, website for the coconut mango iguana tacos I made, but can I ask you about one of yours? One of mine? Yeah. Deer tongue, venison tongue tacos. Uh-huh. The flavor. I got it. What what does that taste like?
2: The flavor of just a deer tongue in general or that specific taco? I
4: have seen I've seen beef tongue in the store. I was just kinda of past it, never been a thing. I, I mm-hmm. try to use everything from the deer when I go hunting. I'll even tan the hide. Um I and after finding out about Uh, From Justin, I learned a lot about stalks and broths lately and I I can't wait for my next hunt to do that to make some venison stuff. I never, ever thought to eat the tongue. Like, how rich is that flavor?
2: I find the flavor actually to be a little mild. I think the really cool thing about the tongue is the texture. It's got a really bouncy flavor. So, I don't really want to compare it really to octopus because it's not like octopus. But if you think about the way that texture is sometimes, um, it's almost, I don't want to say it's like octopus texture. But it's closer to that because it doesn't have any like long muscular fiber strands. Like it, it's very dense, very, very tender. But there's like a little bounce to it. And it's also got a lot of fat really, really fatty cut of meat, so it's just, it's really interesting, it's really good.
4: I'm really interested in trying that next time we go out hunting and then come across the deer tongue.
2: Yeah, for sure, it's really, really good.
1: Corey, uh, you got any any last questions or uh, alibis, misfires? No, I I think I'm good. Alright. Well, I think my biggest thing, uh, Danielle, do do you have anything? we close out here
2: no i don't think so um talks about iguanas check (laughs) (laughs) i'm really fascinated by that
1: (laughs) yeah it's they're they're interesting i I don't know they've intrigued me for a long time and just the fact that they're wild um here and it's if you go 90 miles south to where cuba is it's a different species that lives there and it's like all over the caribbean uh, if you do any research or have any free time looking at iguanas, different species, different recipes, different ways, the different islands will or will not eat them, which is, which is pretty crazy.
2: Yeah. That's interesting.
1: Um, my closing piece, uh, like I said, thanks for coming on. It was awesome having you, uh, chat with us today. And, um, just want to thank everybody out there for listening. Like I said, our 10th episode. So, uh, five months strong. Here's 10 more. And, um, If you had the chance to go over to the Harvest in Nature store, head over there and do that. We've got some new new merch up and uh, got some new hats that we'll be releasing here in the next week or so. Uh, So that'll be pretty cool. If you uh, do us a favor, go on to whatever podcast platform you listen to. uh, Give us a nice rating, review, tell us what we're doing wrong, tell us what we're doing right. You can always email us in. Questions, concerns, comments at what's cooking at harvestsonnature dot com and uh, thank you. Have a good night
0: I'm will Cooper, host of Huntstand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content,
1: be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.